This is week eight of this series. So if it's your first Sunday, it might feel like you've showed up to the movie and there's like 30 minutes left in the film and you're trying to get caught up, like where have we been, where are we going? Um, the good news is you can watch all of the messages um, and listen to the messages online. So if you're a podcast person, you like listen to podcasts, that's a tool. All of the messages are in podcast format. So sometimes it's helpful to listen to things multiple times to, to get it ingrained. So that's an option for you. But week one, Chad did a great job laying the framework for this series in the context of this letter. And where he landed the plane was this idea that I follow Jesus. And then for the next seven weeks, James has been poking the bear a little bit, saying, hey, if you say you follow Jesus, then your life should look differently. Like, there's some things that should be different about how you approach those that are in the category of, of the poor and marginalized, the, the suffering, that, the, how we approach anger and wisdom and humility. All of those things matter when it comes to following after Jesus. But today, to get us going... Uh, a little bit of a survey, and, and this might be, well, I might rattle some people with this, and uh, there might be some conversations on the way home after church today, and frankly, I'm okay with that. So, question for you this morning, how many of you love a good yard sale or a good trip to Goodwill just to donate, just to clean out stuff that's been accumulating that you don't use anymore, just by a show of hands? Okay, all right. Now, there are also some of you here today that you're in the you just never know category. <laughs> you just never know when you're gonna need that box that's been in your basement or closet for, well, years. Or on top of the closet shelf that you open occasionally. Oh yeah, someday I'm gonna get to that. And then maybe even a third dangerous category is you might end up on the television show Hoarders. At some point, that might be a problem for you. Um, year two of, of marriage, uh, I, I did something that, that I still get reminded of to this day. So got married, got a toaster oven as a gift. And, uh, you know, all the little fun things that accumulated at the bottom of a toaster oven. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're supposed to clean it. It hadn't been cleaned. And, and so neither my wife or I were using it for a period of time. And so I just thought, it's time to get rid of the toaster oven. So there was no conversation, just one day it was there, and the next day it wasn't. A couple days later, I get a text message, where's the toaster oven? Oh, it's gone. It's been disposed of. Well, you can imagine how that conversation went, just fill in the details, marriage is fun. So ever since that time, whenever it's donation day, and so we are going to drop off items at Goodwill Donation Center. It's like my wife is working security at the airport. She's going through everything just to make sure I'm not trying to sneak something that she still wants. But it isn't, isn't it interesting how stuff can get in the way of relationships? Like, have you ever had a fight before with the, the haves or the, the have-nots? And there's always some other thing that's on the list, like if we just had that, or maybe we'll get this. Or conversation about how much you should work or how many hours you should put in to get more, well, stuff. Have you ever had a loved one pass away and you're sorting through, well, stuff? And then there's tension about who gets the, well, stuff. But it doesn't just impact our relationships with one another. It also impacts a relationship 
with Jesus. You see, today, James is gonna help us understand that physical wealth makes it easy to forget spiritual poverty. See, good things can quickly become ultimate things. Maybe you've watched a little bit too much Netflix before, and if you've done that, you know the little thing that pops up on the screen. It says, are you still watching? Like, are you still wasting your life? Hours on end, are you still there? Are you still breathing? Or your phone gives you the report of how many hours you've wasted away scrolling. Our possessions can be problematic when it comes to following after Jesus. And the more boxes that I'm about to show that we check here make it easier for us to forget about our deep need for Jesus. Like there are basics that we need to survive, like food, clothing, shelter, good health. But, but everything beyond that is what we would call discretionary. So there's more food, clothing, and shelter. There's what I would call like super health. Like your home is like Trader Joe's, the GNC Center. You're training for the Olympics someday. You're just all in on being as healthy as possible. Not that that's a bad thing, but it can become an ultimate thing. Education, career, family, entertainment, a vehicle or two or three or four, vacation or vacations. You check enough of these boxes. And if you're not careful, the narrative becomes, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need church? Jesus once said this, it's found in the gospel of Matthew chapter 19, verse 24, he said, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so since James spent a lot of time with Jesus, he's gonna sound a lot like Jesus this morning when he says this. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. When we were assigning like who was gonna preach throughout this series, I must have missed that I, maybe I should have given Chad this week. Like this is gonna be a lot of fun to have this conversation this morning. But a couple of disclaimers. Disclaimer number one, if you walk out of church today filled with shame, then I've not done my job. My job is to convince some and perhaps remind others what can happen when we use the gospel as a lens when it comes to our wealth and how our lives can be changed and the lives of those around us can be changed. Disclaimer number two, resist the temptation to think about this message as if it's for somebody else and not you. Because the, the truth is, sometimes we walk out of church and say, well, I wish so-and-so would have heard that message. It would have been really helpful for them. But if we as followers of Jesus put into practice the things that we say we already know or already understand, well, our community would look a lot different. So maybe, just maybe, for the next 30 minutes, you might lean in to what God has to say to you this morning through his word. Now, some commentators would say that what James is saying doesn't apply to people that follow Jesus. 
But that doesn't make sense because James doesn't approach this as you need to go and tell them these things. It's a continuation of a conversation that he started. And so for several chapters, he's been speaking to followers of Jesus saying, you say this, but your life looks this way and it doesn't match up. So 100%, if you say I follow Jesus, this is for you and I collectively together. So let's talk about this. Who falls into this category here? Rich people. Pick your standard. You, you compare your life as you have it right now to the life of those during the time that these words were penned, well, that would be you, you would be rich. U.S. standards, historical standards, global standards, most of the people that call our church home, not all, but most, would fall into this category. If you have discretionary income in the sense more than what you need to survive, clothes on your back, food on your table, a, a shelter, then you are wealthy. And so it says, weep and wail. And this is not the type of weep and wailing that happens like at the Ryerson household anytime a Boston sports team doesn't do well, or around 8 to 8.30, which is bedtime at the Ryerson household. This is the same description used for those outside the tomb of Lazarus. Sobbing. But the connection here is one of shame and regret. One description I read this week said it was screaming and violent, uncontrollable grief. And misery, misery is deep despair and overwhelming distress. So, so why is this happening to this group of people? James says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Now, James comes across in this moment like an Old Testament prophet. So if you've gone through the Old Testament before, it sounds very prophet-like. But it's not just a message of judgment. What he's doing is defining reality. There's an interesting connection here between wealth and, and it being, well, faded or corroded or corrupted or destroyed. Because in this time, there were three categories of wealth. Food clothing, and money. And so if you were wealthy, one of the temptations was to stockpile grain. And this particular group held on to way more than they needed, and as they stockpiled grain, it would begin to rot. Another form of wealth during this time was clothing or robes, these long outer garments that would be embroidered or have jewelry attached to them. And they were of significant value so you would pass them on as heirlooms from one generation to the next. But all they would do was fold them and put them away, and then the moss would come in and do their work, rendering them of no value. Or there was coin. And gold and silver during this time were not uh, pure, pure silver and pure gold that mixed, they were mixed with, uh, with alloy. And so if you would to bury them, and in a sense, I'm going to save them, I'm going to bury my wealth and put it away, they would begin to rust and they would have no value. But the problem that James is pointing out is that all of these things that are temporary have gotten in the way of this group focusing on that which is eternal. 
So he says, the corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Well, the last days, what, what description of period is that? Well, that's right now. Jesus has come once and he's going to return again. So that is this present time that we're living in. And then those that James, are, that James is speaking to are approaching God's clock with no thought of redemptive history or the fact that he just said that life is like a miss. If you missed last week, here one minute, gone the next. Jesus is described in his return as coming like a thief in the night. They're living as if all of their stuff is what matters most and that's what's going to last forever. But if you're here this morning, you're thinking, okay, pastor, so you're describing me because I have discretionary income. Is God angry with me for having wealth? Is God angry with me for being wealthy? Well, we can go to First Chronicles, which we read some of last week, and we hear from someone that was wealthy and powerful, and we hear from David, and listen to his prayer. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and to give strength to all. Now our God will give you thanks and praise your glorious name. So God is not the God that says, here, I'm going to give you something and then be angry at you for possessing it. However, once he's given it to you, to take care of, what you do next is of significant importance. So here's a biblical framework when it comes to stewarding wealth. First thing is submitting our lives to Jesus. He's the king, he's the Lord of lords, I follow him. So I'm gonna give all of who I am, including my wealth, to him. And then I'm making a commitment to serve Jesus. So I might be a husband, I might be a father, but when I show up, ultimately at home, I'm there to serve Jesus. So when we show up at extracurricular activities or we show up in different places in the community, we're there to serve Jesus. When we're at the grocery store, and we're frustrated over something that's taking place, guess what? You're there to serve Jesus. When someone cuts you off in traffic, you're there to serve Jesus. And when you show up at work, you're there to serve Jesus. Serve him and earn what he provides. So we submit our lives to Jesus, we serve Jesus, and then we spend, and in this Category of spending is, again, what you need to live. Everything beyond that 
is a choice. It's discretionary. And so from there, if we're going to steward our wealth according to God's purposes, we're going to share. We're going to invest in the things that matter most to God, building his kingdom, helping more and more people know Jesus. In the Old Testament, there was the building of the tabernacle. In the New Testament, we see putting aside uh, funds for the purposes of the church and gospel expansion. And we also see that part of serving God with our wealth is caring for those that are poor, marginalized, widows, the orphans, which is why we've stepped forward in this way to say, we don't wanna be the church that says, hey, come join us in church. But they're thinking about where their next meal's gonna be, where they're gonna sleep. Are they gonna be warm enough at night? We wanna care for those needs, physical needs, as we care for their spiritual needs as well. So we wanna share what God has given us for his purposes. But the scriptures also say it's important to save. So here's the question. Everyone wants to know, well, how much? Everybody wants to know a percentage. Well, where's the line? Here's the good news. Number one, I have no business answering that for you. And the scriptures don't answer that for you. But what they say is to create enough margin in your life to be generous, to save and even care for your own family, an extended family. So we not only share, we save. And then beyond that, again, it's a choice that you have to make. And the danger here is to soak up more and more for yourself so that you're not in a position to share. So you're not in a position to save which is why Financial Peace University is a great resource that we offer here at Eastern Hills. I went through Crown Financial Ministries, great class, both super helpful. But in the end, if this gets in the way of doing the things that God would have us do, then we're missing out on something that Jesus has for us. There's a part of the relationship with Jesus that you won't get to experience, the joy that comes from generosity, the joy that comes from being open-handed with our wealth. Now, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, someone who else was also not a follower of Jesus once said that money is a terrible master, but a fantastic servant. And so if you're here today and you would say, I haven't done this, Jesus is not my authority. He's not the one that I'm following. And you've chosen to pursue wealth. Like that's the God that you're chasing after. Let me tell you, it will rob you of joy. You will lack peace. Your life will be filled with anxiety, worry, fear. It will begin to destroy the relationships that matter most to you in your life. You will be disappointed and left with despair. And in the end, James says this, their corrosion will testify you against you and eat your flesh like fire. The corrosion is a long period of time, but fire is the fastest consumer of all. Jesus is the God that loves you. 
that wants to set you free from worry, fear, and anxiety. Jesus wants to fill that emptiness in you with something that will satisfy in a way that money and wealth never can. Every single one of us at some point will stand before God and all of the stuff in your life at that point will not matter. What will matter is where you're at with Jesus. James continues. He says this, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So agriculturally, because of the cycle of planting and harvesting, uh, those that were fortunate enough to own the fields, they would not employ people all year round. So you had one of the trades during this time were day laborers, and they would gather at the marketplace and look for work. And they would agree to a contract, and the Old Testament had some really specific laws about how to care for day laborers. But these businessmen weren't just delaying payment, they were defaulting on payment. And they were literally stealing from those that didn't have a lot to begin with. And you would say, well, that is then, and this is now. Well, 20 plus years ago now, when I moved out to California, one of the regular conversations politically was around those that were working that did not have U.S. citizenship. And so what would happen is that they would gain employment, but then they would be taken advantage of. They would not be paid what they had rightfully earned because they could not produce citizenship. And if you listen to enough talk radio, your heart becomes hardened. And then you say, well, they're justified in their response. Jesus would say they're a human being and their life matters too. That's what James is pressing at. So for us today, I mean, is there someone in your life that maybe you owe? Is there things in the garage that maybe you might need to return? And if you're fortunate enough to lead people in work and employment, how are you caring for them? James isn't done. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So this group that James is writing to, let's just put this all in summary. Number one, they're hoarding their wealth as if it's going to last forever. The way that they got their wealth was to steal from those that didn't have any wealth to begin with. And then once they had their wealth, they're living in luxury to bring it full circle. And in the process, what they've done is that they've made a decision to live as if Jesus stayed dead. It is true that the only innocent one that we know is Jesus. He's the only one that never experienced sin, that lived out the law that we've been studying the past few weeks through the, the catechism. He is truth. And yet, we know that he had to go to the cross because we would be greedy, 
because we would be selfish and we would be tempted to hoard. He had to die, and because he's risen, we've been set free from those traps. Because he's risen, God says, here's a pathway for you that leads to eternal life. And in the middle of that path is this thing called wealth that can get in the way. Because physical wealth makes it easy to forget spiritual poverty. There have been seasons in my life where I've cried out to God because I wanted something to change. I wanted something to be different. I was begging for things to change, lamenting, like in the book of Habakkuk, how long, how long, God? And some of you have experienced the level of poverty in your life where maybe you didn't know where the next meal was going to come. You experienced the, the pain of this, the constant, like, mom and dad and, and work and employment and the stresses at home of are they going to be able to provide and the panic of what's going to come next. And you remember that. You might even be in a season right now where you've lost employment and you're thinking, I would love to have those things, but we're just trying to get by. And if I'm describing you, one of the things that we do here at this church is something called the Good Samaritans Fund to help people in those seasons. And that is a resource available to you. But I remember going and visiting my mom in a homeless shelter and it forever changed my perspective because suddenly they're not just faces, they're lives. It's easy to say, well, they made poor choices. They did this to themselves, but all of them have a story to tell. And I can remember uh, seasons where the support check was such a big deal and then the support check stopped and there was panic at home and what is it gonna look like financially and there was all of this stress and anxiety and worry and fear. But as I was reflecting this week, I can clearly point out seasons in my life where I was begging to God for things to change and yet, if I'm being honest, that's not a rhythm in my life when it comes to what I do have. Like begging to God with the same passion and fire with what I do have. God, you have given so much. What will I do to steward all that you have provided for your purposes? A lot easier for me to do that with the have-nots than what I've have got. So James is challenging us to think about our wealth through the lens of the gospel and what could be. Again, the goal here is not shame. The goal is to say, how would I approach my wealth in such a way where I'm set free to be open-handed and say, God, what would you do with what you've given me? Here's an example of what this might look like or what could like and the, the impact when we choose to make that choice. It's this time of year where you go to the grocery store and you see a lot of green because it's what? St. Patty's Day, right? It's coming. And so there's the ingredients. You see all of the sales happening. I was just at the store recently, saw a lot of Guinness on the shelves. 
So we might be familiar with the beer, but are you familiar with the story of Arthur Guinness? In the 1700s, Ireland was gripped by addiction, drunkenness, and poverty. And the reason for that is that there was unsafe drinking water. It was safer for people there to drink gin. And so alcoholism ran rampant, and people were literally drinking themselves to death. John Wesley was a preacher during that time, and he gave a message in Dublin. And the summary of the message was this, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can in the name of Jesus. And sitting in the pews that day was a man by the name of Arthur Guinness. And that message changed his life. And he said, I'm gonna brew beer for the glory of God. Brewing beer at a lower alcohol content than gin. And at that time, it was one of the most nutritious drinks in the country because drinking it was like eating a loaf of bread. And so as business began to prosper, he made a strategic decision with his wealth to provide more jobs for the community and to give his employees dignity by paying them even more than what was common during that time. But it doesn't stop there. Guinness pioneered healthcare for workers, paid vacation benefits, affordable housing for their workers, and even death benefits. One of the things that was said during this time is, ladies, marry a Guinness man because he's worth as much dead as he is alive. But the generosity didn't just stop with Arthur. It was passed down to his children's children. Because by the 20th century, Guinness provided a 24-hour medical clinic, 24-hour dental care, on-site massage therapy, libraries, reading rooms, athletic facilities, housing, schooling fees for children, pensions, paid funeral expenses, and trainings you would be far-fetched to find a company like Guinness that cares for its workers. All because one man said, here's the word of God. If I'm gonna love him and love others, then it's gonna impact the way that I approach my business and my company. Because I communicate about my relationship with Jesus by how I show up to work how I use what I've earned. So this week, here's a question for us to reflect on. Since we've been made spiritually rich in Christ, how might we share our physical wealth for God's purposes? Because the gospel is this, he who was rich and all of his rights became poor so that all of us might be spiritually rich in Christ for all eternity. So this means that when Jesus showed up, he opened up his hands and he was open-handed with his rights and his riches. And he did that so that he could hold on to us like this. That all those that would turn and place their faith in Jesus, you are forever connected to Jesus. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But we only experience that 
because Jesus showed up like this as a servant. How can I help? So would you stand to your feet this morning, Eastern Hills? We're gonna have a little fun as Trey and Grace come back up on stage. And I want you to, to open up your hands like this. This says, how can I help? But here's the temptation to do this. Go ahead and close your fists, to white knuckle it, to soak it up. Now that's what I want you to do. Just like, I can turn to Grace here, like, like we're the fighting Irish. Like this isn't, this isn't welcoming. This doesn't say I'm for you. But now open them up. This is a posture of saying, I'm here to serve Jesus. My life is not my own. Everything I have ultimately belongs to him. And we don't drift there. It's not a default. The way that we get there is to remind ourselves of the gospel over and over and over and over again. The job of your pastor should be to preach the gospel all the time, all the time. And so as we worship together in this last song, I'm gonna invite you to worship just like this. Open hands as a reminder that God has given us so much. So let's be open-handed with our lives and all that he's given. Let's sing together. Sing this out. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, affirmed through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of we're sent. And can you imagine the impact we can have in this community? More and more people knowing Jesus. If we looked at our lives like this, how can I help as open-handed? I've been blessed with so much. So how can I bless you? Have a great week. Eastern Hills, you are sent.